welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist, literature fan, and ready today to learn a lot more about 20th century literature. Today, my guest is Jessica Houghton Wilson. Dr. Wilson is Louise Cowan Scholar in Residence at the University of Dallas. She's the author of three books, Giving the Devil His Due, Flannery O'Connor and the Brothers Karamazov, which received a 2018 Christianity Today Book of the Year in Arts and Culture Award, which is super cool. And then in 2019, she received the Hyatt Prize for Humanities from the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture. In 2022, right now, she will publish The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints, which is what we'll be discussing today, and also Learning the Good Life from the Great Hearts and Minds that Came Before. So welcome, Dr. Wilson. Thank you, Grace, for bringing me on. So pleased you're here. So I like to ask my guests a few get-to-know-you literary questions. The first one for you is, what is your favorite book or books? You don't have to limit yourself. I know it's hard for us um, from more than 50 years ago. So I always go back and forth between the Brothers Karamazov and the Divine Comedy. Those are my two favorites. Um, I'm going to go with the Brothers Karamazov right now because, it, I mean, it's the greatest novel that has ever been written. And Dostoevsky is just a hero of mine. His works, I could just, I could reread over and over again. If I was stranded on an island, the Brothers Karamazov would go with me. Oh, great. And I would read and relish it and, um, and I'm sure continue learning from it, even if it was just that book and me. It's so true. That's one of those books that you could reread a sort of limitless amount of times and you would still be gleaning new things every time you read it. Yep. Um, that is a, a real tome, a serious yeah. one. I, th- I think the first time I read it, um, I was in college and I, remember reading the Grand Inquisitor chapter in the pool, like on a raft, which is such a funny, <laughs> weird juxtaposition for such an intense book, but there you go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Number two, which literary character do you most identify with and why? I'm going to go with Harriet Vane from Gaudy Night by Dorothy Sayers. I don't oh, know if you know Dorothy Sayers mystery novel, Gaudy Night. And Harriet Vane is this character that was in some part modeled on Dorothy Sayers herself, but she was an Oxford grad, you know, even before they had women getting degrees, right? So that you would leave Oxford, you would go down at Oxford and you wouldn't have a degree yet. And then she was making her way in the world by writing mystery stories. And I can just see a lot of myself in her, just this question that she's always dealing with between women who have brains and heart and how to function in the world with both brains and heart. And especially because at that time, even more so men only expected you to have hearts. They didn't expect you to have brains right. <laughs> and the struggle that she deals with there. I, I just feel like I relate a lot to, to her experience and her questions. Yeah, I, I've read some of Dorothy Sayers uh, nonfiction, but I have not read her mystery novels. Which I, need, I need to. I've heard, especially yeah. lately, I feel like they've been popping up. I don't know. Well, why. there were three biographies in the last year that have yes. come out. And then four, if you count Christine Cologne's um, community, Dorothy Sayers book. Oh, I'm going to get the title wrong. 
I think I just saw, did you post on Instagram recently? Was that you of you reading um, a Dorothy Sayers biography or was that somebody else? Yes, probably. I read read a ton of her biographies and I actually just found one in the, um, this is an old, it was the first one. I found it in a used bookstore. I have to show you her cover. Isn't this fantastic? It has this like old, weird, grotesque portrait of Dorothy Sayers with people getting hung and shot behind her because of the mystery <laughs> novelist, you know? And so, yeah, this was the first biography to ever be done. And it has this picture of her when she's only nine years old. <laughs> oh my <laughs> gosh. That's hilarious. What a great used yeah. bookstore find. I love that. Oh yeah. It was fantastic. Um, I hope this doesn't distract from your listeners, but when I went to the used bookstore, they had someone had passed away recently and he was in his nineties and he loved literature. And this was in, um, where were we? Baltimore. I was in Maryland and the owners of the bookstore didn't even know what to do because all these books on Sayers and Williams and Lewis, and there were Bibles that were both Hebrew and Greek. And, and, and that's not their demographic in Baltimore to like Uh want these kind of books. And they're like, what do we do with all these books? I was like, can I, can I have all of them? (laughs) Just give me all of them. I don't know who this man was, but I would take all of his library. That's so Um, fun. Um, I love the good treasure trove in a used bookstore. We, we find somebody who had, uh, a similar passion to yours, but it's an obscure one and you yes, find it yes. and you're just like, nobody knows the treasure here. I must take it home right I away. I know, I know. Yeah, that's what I was doing. So I was just buying all sorts of books. Oh, oh, the best. Okay, so to get to your new book coming out, um, your first forthcoming book emphasizes the role of the imagination in spiritual formation through looking at different sort of literary saints Um, particular characters in books. Could you tell us more about the scandal of holiness for um, the audience out there? Sure. So I'm a Protestant, but I studied a lot of Russian Orthodox and Catholic theology and literature when I was in my graduate program at Baylor. And uh, so I've always been drawn to those approaches to Christianity and to the faith. And we don't have the veneration of saints. We don't uplift our saints. I mean, there are, you know, there's Fox's book of martyrs or everybody loves Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, but there really isn't this, you know, modeling, especially when you're young, even to kind of say like, who do you want to be like? And you're looking for those models. Who is most like Jesus Mm. who reflected Jesus in the way that they lived. And, and, you know, my parents always pointed to my grandparents, but, but where were those figures that the stories that should have saturated our lives, that should have given us direction, that should have showed us what it looked like to live a good life. And instead, what we did is we, we took popular culture. We took American emblems of heroes. We uplift Marvel and put them all over our kids' backpacks and lunchboxes, but we don't have real stories of what it means to live like Jesus surrounding ourselves. And so what I did is I, I looked through the novels that have given me those heroes, mm. those people that pursued holiness in their lives. They're not canonized. <laughs> They're not real. <laughs> um, <laughs> A problem to know. canonization. <laughs> so <laughs> so they're, they're not, and some of the books are written by Catholics. Some are written by Russian Orthodox. Some are by Protestants, some are by atheists who are just searching and uh, trying to understand holiness, like Willa Cather in Death Comes for the Archbishop, which is based on a real person. 
And I, I wanted to look for what were those features of a holy life and how can I live like that? What does it mean to model that kind of life and, and to saturate my own life with those stories? Awesome. Um, so some intrepid listeners who have been tuning in recently might be, we just had an episode on here. Um, Karen Swallow Pryor came on last month and she talked about her book, which is also um, expanding Christian imagination mm-hmm. through literature, but she does it through focusing on the language of the virtues while you dwell on holiness. And so why holiness? What does that yeah. cover that's different than like virtuous language? Right. So holy is to be set apart. So I love Karen's book and I reviewed it, you know, and praised oh, it. Oh, it's great. It yeah. yeah. Uh, her book could be read by you know, the most open humanist and have no one's going to balk at being kind, being patient, uplifting a lot of these cardinal virtues, right? Courage, justice, temperance, et cetera. But most humanists, you cannot understand asceticism, for example. You cannot understand foregoing the luxuries of this life. For what reason would you do that? And only a holy calling makes sense of some of those virtues, right? They're, they're even, I mean, Christian virtue, she does deal with faith, hope, and charity, but at the same time, what does faith look like in practice? A lot of times it looks foolish and crazy. And so what I'm doing is I'm drawing out that extreme version of it, right? What is it that we have been called to that really should make us set apart? And a lot of times literature pulls to the extreme Mm-hmm. what it looks like to set apart in the hopes of getting us as um, Dostoevsky would say, getting us to even go halfway towards mm-hmm. sainthood, right? We're, we're too afraid to be foolish or to become a martyr or to become a saint, you know, walks naked in the street, praising God. But what does it look like to go halfway? Does it mean having less clothing? Does it mean having less of desire for material things. What does it look like to go that direction? So that's the difference I would say between mine and Karen's work though. You know, sometimes within the Brazos community, we've even been talking like, it's like a sequel to On Reading Well. <laughs> you know, it's like part two, uh, The Scandal of Holiness. Let's go a little bit further. And yeah, what uh, I so love I, about both yeah. your projects is that you're both committed to literature as a means of expanding the Christian imagination and um, thinking about what uh, thinking with fiction entails, uh, thinking with narrative entails. We naturally live these narrative lives where we're experiencing our own stories in time. And um, and so seeing narrative works differently than reading um, theory or yeah. reading theology even. Right. So even there's theology coming out of this text, but it's still grounded in a story. Right. So that's how I, I really see the connection between you two, but you're interested in different language. But um, what aspects of holiness uh, does is the book focusing on it? I know you mentioned asceticism. Right. Um, what other things are do you consider scandalous to... Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a nice American well-ordered life. Right, right. <laughs> well, recently in my last newsletter, I talked about obedience because marginally I considered obedience in my book. I wish I could almost go back and add a whole chapter on it. That's mm. one of those scandalous virtues that you see in, in great literature. And especially it's one that leads us towards holiness. What but book would follow- you pair with obedience if you were to add it? 
Yeah, I was. Well, I'm reading in this house of breed right now. I have not read it. No, I like people are raving, and I know it's a it's a. I mean, it's a contemporary book, right? But it's about a medieval subject, right? Isn't it? It's not medieval. No, it take no. It's uh, it takes place in the 1950s. Oh, okay. I was all mixed up about that. Oh, cool. But it, okay. But it takes, but it's a monastic community. So it probably feels okay. medieval because they go century back. Um, the monastic community was founded, I think in the 11th century. Oh, and, yeah. but it's 1950s nuns in England living out what seems crazy to most 1950s readers. Okay. Yeah. So, and all of these nuns are, oh, it's so good. It's so good. I, I mean, again, I found it at a half, a half price bookstore, used bookstore. So it's like falling apart. It's one of the original 1950s edition, but that I would go back and, and do that novel. I think there's just so many novels. And I said that in my book, you know, I'm starting with some of these virtues, but there's so many more. I mean, I look at suffering as uh, the way that God works through us and, and what would it look like to not be afraid of suffering? Mm-hmm right in our lives to see suffering with less fear um, and more of embracing suffering when it comes, not because suffering in and of itself is good, but because you trust that the Lord is doing something with it, mm-hmm. which is just amazing to me. People who've done that uh, looking at, at death and not being afraid of death. What does a good death look like? Mm-hmm. Right. Ars Moriendi. And so I look at Ars Moriendi thinking of ourselves more as in a community of persons, less with this American autonomous individualism right? and trying to reclaim the idea that you don't belong to yourself. Alan Noble just wrote a great book on that, but like you don't belong to yourself. What does it look like to belong to other people? Right. And those claims that, that other people have on you. So living a life of radical in like dependence rather than, or interdependence rather than independence. Um, I think it's just going to strike people as odd and crazy, but true. Hopefully yeah. also is true. So that's what I'm going for is I'm not, when I talk about scandal, I'm not trying to talk about things that are uncomfortable simply for the sake of being uncomfortable, but they're uncomfortable because the truth is pointing us to something that is outside of our comfort. And maybe being comfortable is not where we're called to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I do think there's something, something about comfort and the, the glorification of comfort today that, is, that can be a real hindrance to us in our, in our pursuit of truth and beauty. Um, and I say that, of course, as a comfortable <laughs> white yes. American woman. So it's hard yeah. to it's hard to even sort of begin to wrap our heads around that. But um, I, I did appreciate that about the challenge, the gauntlet that your book throws down to um, break through some of those things that we're very attached to and, and that are hard to not to let go of. I mean, we like them for a reason. Um, yeah. And I think that we need, that's one of the reasons that imagination works because you can get preached at all day to let go of some of these things, but really it's about seeing differently. If you can practice with certain narratives that will actually transform the way you see them, you desire them less. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not about just being told that you're not supposed to want these things. You have to cultivate a different desire and that's about cultivating a different imagination. Yeah, and that actually brings up one of the quotes I I really enjoyed and thought um, th- thought a good a good thing to meditate on more, and that I'd love to unpack a little bit with you. Which is, um, you wrote that 
stories convert our desire for well-versed explanations and, um, and well-versed explanations are another form of comfort relatedly to what we're talking about, but, but more so how can stories do that? Do you think? And then what's so wrong with a well-versed explanation too? Cause I do think we need to pause on that for a sec Yeah, or not, maybe yeah. not necessarily wrong, but what else is out there, you know? Right. Flannery O'Connor talks about the Catholic desire for the instant answer. And I think this has a lot to do with just Catholic. We should see a small C the Christian desire for the instant answer is the problem. Um, Most mysteries in life don't have an instant answer. I had a friend who called me last night having kind of an existential crisis. I don't know if that's the right way of phrasing it. Hasn't the last two years been an existential crisis I think, for everyone? <laughs> One so, long ongoing <laughs> crisis. Right? And so we were talking about, there is no, you know, she had called me saying she wanted to talk through this and she was, you know, really telling me her story as a, as a good way of putting it. And all I could do is tell my story because there is no, answer. I don't, (laughs) I don't have a solution for the suffering or the problems or the mysteries or the questions that people are having. There is no clear answer. There is an answer. It's absolute, but it's so mysterious and it's so above us and beyond us that we're going to spend our whole lives moving closer and closer to it. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, one of my professors in, in grad school, David Lyle Jeffrey, talks about truth being um, asymptotic, meaning like if you have the X, Y axis, you have the graph, truth is always going to get closer and closer to it, right? You're going to try to seek towards it, but it's never going to touch the lines Mm -hmm. in this life. Mm -hmm. And we, in order to not feel always uncomfortable with that, we, we have to practice a certain level of comfort with those mysteries rather than feel comfortable when it's just a well-versed explanation, when it's just, Oh, this is the answer. Because I think I think when we reduce our big problems and our mysteries to a clear X plus Y equals Z answer, we've lost the mystery. We've mm. reduced it. And when we become uncomfortable, sometimes we become angry. We can't see outside of that. We limit ourselves. We narrow our vision. And all of those things become problematic for how we exist in the world. Yes. And I want to note, two things here. One is that I don't think I've heard the word asymptotic since high school. So that's really exciting that that word's back in my life. Um, Number two, though, is that uh, I I really like um, what you're saying about this balance between mystery and, and, uh, and a place where you can dwell in the mystery without just sort of being in agony where there's that constant tension and, and that narrative can help us do that. Because I think that that's a, a real counterpoint to a lot of the issues that we face right now socially where people are people of all different backgrounds and ideologies are insisting upon a well-versed explanation for many different things. And as a result, we're seeing um, a lot of pain and a lot of uh, explanations that can't even begin to to, um, offer us what we need, but being offered out as these solutions for things. And and I feel like that's a keen source of so much polarization that we have Mm -hmm. right now is this like, no, it has to be like this. No, it has to be like this. Right. And, um, not being able to lean into the difficulty of 
hitting upon truth when we're all together. Yeah, absolutely. I just wrote a piece on Dostoevsky and uh, in response to Dan Mahoney, who was talking about Dostoevsky is never a counter ideologist. And that's true. Ideologies are ones that limit your vision. They're very didactic. They're the well-versed explanations of the world. And Dostoevsky doesn't offer that. He offers narratives. He offers concrete people living a certain way when, when you can't refute that suffering is bad and that suffering is everywhere you can actually kiss the sufferer. Hmm. You can reach out your hand, right? There are ways of living and being in the world in that mystery when you don't have the well-versed explanation to lean on. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so here's another question for you because um, you're doing basically a literary saint's life, so to speak, where you're mm-hmm. looking at these characters, you're walking through plot points with them, you're thinking about their story and how their story fits within this larger story of redemption or of um, the cross. Mm -hmm. And um, I was wondering, so uh, here's, I'm about to use a a largish word, um, hagiography, which you use, um, but for, for listeners who are like, Hmm, I don't think I know that word. It means, it basically means a saint's life. And it was a genre very popular in the middle ages and also in other time periods as well, but telling a saint's life. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, do you think fiction is more powerful or more helpful than a hagiography? Mm -hmm. Um, which is, or do you do you think that fiction can do things that hagiography or even biography can't do? Or yeah. do you think that they're all sort of fitting and, and fulfilling the same thing? This was a little generic nerd question that I had. So. Yeah. No, I think there, I mean, I think there's different roles for all of those. So I love biographies in general because, again, quoting David Lyle Jeffries, I, I love how teachers make up so much of who we are, right? They just form us yes. so much. So, so Jeffrey completely formed me in a lot of ways. And he talked about us being inextricably middled in our own stories. Mm. We don't know the ending. Like, I don't know how my story ends. And so I can't see beyond like, what is the point of whatever is happening right now? Mm-hmm. Whereas a biography, you get to look at a person's life and you see how certain things that they were in the middle of play out in the total narrative. Yes. So it increases your faith in a storyteller. It increases your faith in an author of your existence to see how that author has written these other stories of lives. Mm -hmm. So for me, I love hagiography, biography, especially hagiography done well. I, again, I'm Protestant. And so there are a lot of hagiographies that I think are not done well. Dorothy Day says this in um, her book on pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. She tried to pick up hagiography and was like, Ugh, no, but no wonder nobody wants to be a saint. Right. And <laughs> right. so, and sometimes the way that it's written is so unattainable mm-hmm. and yet we are all called to be saints. I think it's a major problem in some translations of the Bible that they change the word sanctus. They change the word holiness and, and sainthood into those who follow Christ, the disciples of Christ. When actually Paul is writing to the saints of the church, that's the language that he uses, to those who are called to be holy, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and so hagiography, if it's not written with a way that invites you to participate in that same call to holiness, becomes the problem, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I would say the same with great literature. Literature, if it is not calling you to a true vision of the world, can be very problematic, mm-hmm. If it's going to lie to you in the story that it tells, 
about a world that is not like this one. Um, in, in the sense of this world is both invisible and visible things. And if it limits it only to visible reality is all that there is, what do we do with that? Those of us who believe in the invisible and the visible realms, right? What, in what ways, if a story tells us that if we just believe hard enough, all of our dreams come true, then that story is lying to us about reality. And so I would want to make sure that whether it's a hagiography, a biography, or it's literature, does it tell a true narrative mm-hmm. about who we are and why we're here? Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that is a, an interesting overlapping Venn diagram between them in, in thinking through what their possibilities are. Um, and it's interesting when you think of, <laughs> uh, as a, you're a mom of young kids, I'm a mom of young kids. Uh, it's interesting because you think um, a lot of children's literature actually has some really goofy messaging out there. And I, I'm hearing that as you think through uh, what's true and what's not true. Some of your language, I'm like, that sounds like a lot of children's books that we read on a regular basis. But anyways, that's kind of a sideline. But <laughs> I think that, I mean, I think that's really important. Uh, C.S. Lewis, you can also buy his book on reading life, which I think is so great. It's just a collection of like quotes uh-huh. about reading. But he talks about every great work of children's literature should be read as an adult and enjoyed as an adult. And if it can't be, then it shouldn't be read as a kid either. Right. Yes. I mean, they need to be telling the truth about the world, whether it's written for three-year-olds or 30-year-olds. Absolutely. Um, I, I found your chapter on suffering to be the most interesting and provocative of your chapters. Um, as a scholar of medieval literature, I've noticed time and time again for myself that medieval people are, way, way more interested in suffering in very diverse ways. It's not like a monolith of suffering. And then they're also mm-hmm. committed to its value uh, much more than we are today. And I, I find I'm both attracted to and repelled by their attitude, depending on the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so your chapter was uh, fit really into that um, line of inquiry. And so this is a question that sort of contains multitudes, which is, how can literature help us to conceptualize and endure suffering without either resorting to platitudes, which is one way that we see super clearly, or denigrating our God-given bodies, which is sort of the other dangerous side of things. Um, So for example, you talk about asceticism. And I think this is a place that I'm really interested in hearing more about because I know my Christian imagination needs expansion on this, no doubt. But when I hear this, I think of the wildest examples like Simeon the Stylite who lived Mm -hmm. on a pillar for 37 years in the fifth century. Or I think of um, many medieval Christians, especially women who basically starved themselves in the pursuit of holiness um, and some of them to their own deaths. So we're not after that necessarily, the, the modern church has spent a lot of time running away from that past. Right. But then what could, how could narrative help us to reclaim asceticism? What might a reclaimed asceticism look like in daily practice? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's something that I deal with. I have, you can't see it, but on my desk, I have this picture of, um, and I've had this, had this here since grad school. And this is St. Anthony, the Martin um, Schongauer, illustration from 1470 where St. Anthony goes off into the desert and finds that the demons are more there, right? So it's one of those ideas of I'm in my home office, not surrounded by um, 
gossips or liars or whatever, but I'm surrounded by myself and there's mm-hmm. demons, you know, everywhere you go. So I think our modern conception of asceticism needs to realize that, that the problems are not out there. The problems are in here. The demons mm-hmm. are not those with tails that are out there floating around fighting for or against us. They're in the heart, right? Um, again, Brothers Karamazov, uh, the battlefield <laughs> is the heart, right? Where, where God and the devil are seen fighting, according to Dimitri, that there's this idea of, of a fight within us. And if the case is that a fight is within us, in what ways are we training for that fight? And what does that look like? And so these women who starved themselves, they were trying to put their body into submission so that the cravings or the desires for the worldly things didn't trump their desire for spiritual things. Right. So the desire is so good. What does that look like? Why? I mean, we're so afraid of becoming those who starve themselves to death. We don't fast. Right. Right. Or we're so afraid of, of saying that pleasure is bad, which it's not. Right. I mean, Chesterton and Lewis both point to the fact that pleasure is on God's side. Pleasure is from God, not from the devil. But we're so afraid of that that we just indulge in every pleasure, you know, and Mm -hmm. we'll become as large as G.K. Chesterton because, (laughs) (laughs) you know, at least we're not afraid of pleasure. We know pleasure is from God. So I, I do think that we need to get back into this idea of a spiritual battle that takes place within the human heart and that we do need to train and submit our bodies to the highest ends and to the highest goals. And, and that's going to be looking different for every single person. What kind of calling that is all people have different abilities. Um, some people are sick and there's no way they could train their body into submission because their body's already being trained in submission by sickness. Right. And, and that sickness, uh, who was it? Um, Oh, again, saints, her name starts with it. Is it Angela Fio? Some Catholic is just going to be laughing at me right now that I don't know this. Um, but 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 there's a there's a, a Catholic saint who she was talking about um, those external uh, sanctifying things that are placed upon you that are already making you an ascetic. Mm-hmm. So for people you know who have MS or have RA or have certain things, that's already a sanctifying process. They don't need to add to that process. Yeah. Does that make sense? Or those of us with small children, Dorothy Day spoke about this as well. Dorothy Day says that you are already being sanctified because your will is not the highest will in the house right now. Your will is, is in submission to those little wills around you that are claiming part of you. So just envisioning, sometimes it's just a matter of envisioning our current circumstances as a process of sanctification and not as things that we need to flee and have our alone time, have our self-care time, Right to to return to this idea that the self is all important because there's so many things calling for us to not be the, the center of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe just reimagining those things as helping us fight the battle that's internal between uh, our our demons and and the God who calls us to Himself. Yeah, I think it's oh, it's such a interestingly fraught and loaded question that I I think will just be. Oh, all those issues, it, it's a pendulum swing where if you look at the medieval church, so much of it was at one end of the pendulum and right now we're at the other end of the pendulum and it's really hard to find that equilibrium in between. Um, and, and you're right, it will vary from person to person, um, just like the virtues do, just like the life well lived does. There's not a one size fits all and to to see asceticism as a, as a one size fits all situation 
uh, will not work. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I, I find that fascinating and, and also uncomfortable. And I think that is often a good sign for me as I'm reading older literature, the places where I'm uncomfortable, not necessarily that I'll end up agreeing with, mm-hmm. with them, but to dive into that and to press on that and to find out right. where the source of that uh, lack of ease is can be super fruitful um, as mm-hmm. a reading process. Absolutely. Um, so I didn't know uh, until you sent me your bio that you have another literary looks like maybe literary themed book coming out this year. Um, <laughs> yes. and that's awesome. Congratulations. But do you want to tell us more about that one? It's well, that is a collection of great books. Oh, so, cool. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the great books, of course, are under attack right now. And so the learning the good life, it was a process that began in 2019 where a colleague and I, when we were both at John Brown university, we're trying to find ways to introduce first year students into the tradition. Mm-hmm. Whereas most um, first, you know, first year seminars are are written by student life and student development, and they don't really take any look at tradition, mm-hmm. right? When you have these, you know, how to learn, how to be in college, uh, how to time manage. But what is more important is why are you there? What are you doing with your life? And as I've gotten more involved in classical education, the K through twelve, and talking to a lot of parents who they don't know the tradition. So their kids are reading the Iliad and they're not reading the Iliad. Mm -hmm. And so this great books reader, I think has two different uh, benefits. One for colleges who have decided to cut their humanities programs or cut their great books. Here's a reader that all of your students should be reading to at least introduce you to um, what is the tradition? What does life look like within this tradition? What is the great human conversation that we're a part of? So, and it's a very uh, diverse reader. So we start with things like Lao Tzu's The Way, mm-hmm. the Tao, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which C.S. Lewis calls on in the abolition of man as one of those documents that the Western tradition has always drawn from, or not always, but has drawn from. And we don't often teach it within the Western tradition. So we mm-hmm. have you know, Eastern sources like that, that are part of this great conversation that we too often ignore, um, marginalized voices that we haven't paid attention to as much as we should have, like Jarena Lee, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, Anna Julia Cooper. Mm-hmm. Um, we also look at throughout like women, a lot of times women are written out of the story, whereas women have been part of the story for the ages. So we look at, you know, Sorawana, Inez de la Cruz, and we have uh, Julian of Norwich, and we have a lot of these women writers, Marjorie Kemp, Dorothy Sayers, that are all included in the story too. So it's it's a great, great books reader, and it gives small excerpts, and they're introduced by professors across the country, mm-hmm. and then they have discussion questions. So for that second use, you either use it in the classroom, or if you're at a dinner table, you bring it to the dinner table and your teenagers all discuss together these questions about these great texts uh, and have really good dinner conversations, you know, <laughs> uh, about things that are meaningful, hopefully. So I'm, I'm hoping that that's what that reader does. I would give this to everybody that I knew. Um, I think it's just a really accessible book. So I haven't, um, I didn't write a large majority of it. I only wrote the introduction, but I did compile the, the authors and the excerpts. Well, I love the idea of um, of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater in terms of the canon. Um, mm-hmm. 
yeah, as somebody who's been in the humanities a while too, I I often feel uh, dismayed at the lack of of reading of, of many of these texts, but at the same time, knowing that the canon has been so exclusionary for a long time. Mm-hmm. Hearing you talk about that balance is really great. That sounds very exciting and yeah. and like a really helpful, thought-provoking tool. So yeah, my, my colleague and I, Jake Stratman is the other editor. I mean, we've, it still has, it has Augustine, it has Sitica, it has Plato, it has uh, Dante, you know, it still is Shakespeare. It still is the Western canon but it's a Western canon that acknowledges the necessity of hospitality and the fact that all of these voices have been part of the conversation. We just weren't listening. Yes. Right? So it's yes. just a very full picture, I hope. No, it always makes me think of Jane Austen's persuasion where she says, don't, don't quote literature to me. All the men wrote it and, and oh, just would yeah. hopefully fit Anne Elliott's yeah. uh, ideal of, yes. of what, uh, of a good source of truthful thinking about humankind. So <laughs> oh, I know. Well, now I have to go back to persuasion because I completely forgot that. And I love that. I persu- persuasion is my favorite Jane Austen novel. So now I need to go back to that. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that back to memory. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's a good one. It's a, it's a little, a little sassy Jane Austen yeah, note for yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, I actually have one more question for you. Sure. And this is a selfish question for me and hopefully other people will benefit from it. But so I'm a 20th century literature loser. I'm just not well read in this century, um, especially on the fiction front of things. Yeah. And so if you could just give your little short blurb, what is not missable in 20th century oh, fiction? Yeah, Flannery O'Connor. Which one? Just everything Flannery O'Connor. <laughs> I mean, I would start with her complete stories and the trick with Flannery O'Connor's complete stories, they were published in the order she wrote them. You read them from the end to the back to the front because you have to start with Revelation, which is her absolute best. It was the height of her powers before she died. She wrote it on her hospital bed. Oh my gosh! And gosh. then read back because the first stories are her MFA thesis. She wrote them when she was twenty. They're not the height of Flannery O'Connor's powers, okay. right? Um, so get her complete stories and then start at the back with Revelation read it and move forward. But she is not missable. Um, I mean, I would say, you know, I'm pointing this, you can just look at my work to see who I point the light at. Solzhenitsyn, Walker Percy, Flannery O'Connor. Those are my my go-to writers. I think those are just some of the best writers of of the century. Walter Wingeren Jr. is a really contemporary writer who just passed away. Um, the Book of the Dun Cow, I write about it in The Scandal of Holiness. I feel like everyone should get their hands on that. <laughs> uh, Kristen Lovren's daughter, really my book, I'm sorry, if I just start listing out the books that I talk <laughs> about, like those are some of my favorite 20th century books and writers is in that book. I mean, this has been a long time coming with The Scandal of Holiness. I started working on it in 2014, the idea and um, these are all my favorite 20th century writers. And I give a list, I think, at the end of every chapter, like, here's here's some more. Here's some mm-hmm. more writers. Rumor gotten included, right? Here's some more writers that you need to be reading. So. Great. Yeah. Okay. Read Flannery <laughs> O'Connor backwards, folks. Absolutely. What I'll be doing. <laughs> well, and then after you do, I will come back on and we will talk about Flannery because Flannery is a necessary. Um, she has taught me so much just about how to live. I don't. I don't even know how to live without Flannery O'Connor because she's just formed my imagination so much. So I love that. Um, okay. And so 
for listeners, what are the best places to find you online if they would like to follow what you're doing, see what you're up to, all that good stuff? Yeah, absolutely. As I was telling somebody recently, um, for me, the online world is just a giant classroom. And so I love getting to participate and be a co-learner in that classroom. So I'm on Twitter, but you'll find that most of my Twitter is just like a giant syllabus for what it is that I'm doing and think people should be reading and and talking about. And uh, I also have a website, jessicahootenwilson.com. You can write me as well if you want to talk about books, if you want to talk about pursuing a graduate degree, or if you want to talk about how to balance a reading life while being a mom or whatever it is that's on your mind, um, I'm happy to consider that office hours with students and (laughs) really get a chance to talk to more people. So um, don't, don't be afraid to do that too. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Wilson. Um, We really enjoyed our conversation and um, yeah, thank you. If you would like to go a little further, hear more, learn more about medieval literature, I have a new project, which is a monthly newsletter called Medievalish with Grace Hammond on Substack. Each month uh, I share some medieval or literary meditations, a prayer from the past and what I've been reading and up to at the moment. Uh, So go ahead and subscribe, check that out if you're interested. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you rated and reviewed on whatever platform you listen to. It helps me out a lot and it helps others to find the program. Thank you so much for listening to Unpleasant Grace.